Um, we are in a series called Esther, where it is exactly what the name says it is. We are just going through uh, the Old Testament book of Esther and uh, taking six weeks to kind of do that and see what God um, can show us and teach us uh, from this book. And so today we're in week two of that. Um, in the year 1890, 1890, a guy named Russell uh, Conwell wrote a story called Acres of Diamonds. Anybody ever heard of the story Acres of Diamonds? A couple of you guys heard the story Acres of Diamonds? Okay, I was hoping none of you heard it so I could make some stuff up, but I guess I can't do that now. No, I'm just kidding. So, um, preacher stories, you know. Uh, but anyway, no, this guy named Russell Connell wrote this story called Acres of Diamonds. And let me just give you the quick gist of the story um, to kind of let you know what's going on. But it pretty much goes like this. There was this farmer, and uh, this guy stopped by one day. Uh, he was an Arab guy. He stops by the farm one day. And uh, this, uh, this guide and this farmer get in this conversation, and this Arab guide begins to tell him that uh, there's lots of businessmen, and lot, not businessmen, but lots of people getting wealthy off of mining diamonds. Mining diamonds. And he begins to tell this story about how these, these guys are, are, you know, kind of selling everything they have and kind of heading over into the Middle East and, and, uh, and mining for these, these diamonds. And so um, they talk about that, and he kind of shares some amazing stories about that, and and so the guy, the, the guest, the guy, he, he leaves, um, goes on his way. And for the next two weeks, month or so, this farmer cannot get the thought out of his head that, that there are these people making just bukus of money uh, mining diamonds. And so after a period of time when this thought just, he can't shake it, and he just keeps thinking about, you know, the diamonds, the diamonds, the diamonds, he decides that he is going to go and mine diamonds. I mean, if, if everybody else could go mine diamonds and make a lot of money, why not? I'll go mine diamonds. And so he sells everything. He sells his farm. Uh, he sells what he has, packs up his family, and they head uh, across the Atlantic. That's the Atlantic, right? Yeah, across the Atlantic. And they begin to mine. He tries to start mining for diamonds. Six months go by and nothing. They don't find a thing. And he's obviously discouraged. You would probably be discouraged as well. Some time goes by, doesn't find anything. There's starting to be some tension in the family. Obviously, you would imagine, you know, we've packed up everything. We haven't found anything. Time goes on a little bit farther. He, his wife and his kids end up leaving him. He still hasn't found anything. And two years go by, and he still hasn't found any diamonds. The guy hasn't found any diamonds. The, the story goes... Uh, or the myth, or the, the legend goes that supposedly this guy was losing his mind. He started losing his mind, kind of going crazy, kind of life just spiraled down in kind of a depression. And, and he, he's, he ends up kind of almost going crazy. He loses everything. He loses all his farm, his wealth, his family. He loses everything. Well, this guy, this guide who had stopped by the farm years earlier was passing through town again one day, and he stops back by the farm. Where the, where the previous farmer was. He stops by the farm, and he, he knocks on the door, and he just says, hey, I'm looking for uh, so-and-so. I don't remember the guy's name, but I'm looking for the, the, you know, the guy that the, 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 the owns the farm. And the, the new farm owner says, oh, he doesn't live here anymore. He sold the farm to me a few years ago. Um, yes, you know, supposedly he, he wanted to go find diamonds. And the guy goes, oh, so he begins to tell him the story and kind of tell him about um, mining diamonds and everything. And and kind of what happened. And so they get done with their conversation, and, and, and the guest, the guy, he ends up leaving. And so a little bit of time goes by, and, and the, the new farm owner uh, is out one day working the farm, and he's 
you know, uh, he's got his horses out there working the farm, and he takes his, his horses down to uh, this creek that's on the farm property, and he takes them down there so that they can uh, get something to drink. And when he goes down there and looks down in the creek, there is something that is kind of a funny reflection down in the creek. And so he digs it up, and he takes it, and he takes it back with him, and he ends up doing a little digging and researching and, and takes it to people, I guess, who would know. Come to find out, it was a diamond. It was a diamond on the farm. And so they begin to go back, and they start looking, and they start digging. And come to find out, as they began to dig and dig and dig, they found more diamonds on the farm property. And the, the myth or the legend supposedly may be true. I don't know, maybe true like uh, the movie Gravity. We'll just go with that, you know, hey, whatever. Uh, but supposedly true, like this property on this farm ends up becoming one of the largest minefields, documented minefields in the United States of America, right? That's kind of the story that the speech and the story uh, that, that Russell Conwell wrote. And the moral of the story, or the takeaway of the story of this Acres of Diamonds, is that this far farmer, this first guy, felt incomplete. He felt like he was missing something. He saw an opportunity out there, and he sold everything that he had. He leveraged everything that he had in order to go search for something meaningful, search for something great, you know, find that, that greatness, all while the whole time it was in his backyard. The whole time, he lost everything searching for greatness and significance. The whole time, it's sitting in his backyard. Well, that really kind of describes where we're, what we're going to find today in Esther chapter 2. Um, we're, we're picking up the story in Esther chapter 2. And today, we're going to see two things in, um, in the story. Uh, the first thing that we're going to find today, I'm kind of giving you the answers before we ever even get to the content in case you slide out early on me. But the first thing that we find today in Esther chapter 2 is we're going to find that God has already given us what we need in order to do something significant. That God has already given us what we need to do something significant. And the second thing we're going to find is that he does all the heavy lifting in order to make significant things happen. That God does all the heavy lifting. So we're going to find in this story in Esther chapter 2 that, that he's already given us what we need. And we're going to find that he does the heavy lifting when it comes to uh, significant things happening. So last week, if you were here last week, um, we read the first part of the story, Esther chapter 1, a little bit of chapter 2. And uh, man, if you were here and you decided to come back, you either love Jewish history or you dominated Jewish trivia at lunch Sunday after church because... It was a lot of information, a lot of information. We dropped a lot of context to the story and kind of explaining all that. But we found out about the Babylonians. We found out about a king named Xerxes. Um, we found out that Xerxes' wife Vashti uh, disrespected him and was thrown out as queen. And now a girl named Esther, even though she doesn't know it, a girl named Esther has the chance to become the next queen of the Persian Empire. But she has a secret. No one knows that she is a Jew, and she's not saying anything about it. Now, I am the daughter, or the daughter. I am the father of two daughters. A lot of you know my story. I wanted all boys until I had my first girl, and now I don't want a boy within 100 miles of my house. I want all girls. I'm trying to talk my wife into a couple more. I mean, I just, you know, I, wanted, I just want all girls in the house, and I think it's noble. Andrea says it's selfish. I just want to be the center of attention. That could possibly be it, too. 
you know. Dad, they like to cuddle up with daddy, so I, I love that. And so being the dad of daughters, I have watched quite a bit of Disney princess movies. And, and I, I have read, we, we really try to really pay attention and focus in at nighttime, spending time with kids and with our kids. And so um, I'll read to Sadie at night and I'll say, Sadie, come on, let's read. And she's like, yeah. And I'll say, daddy will pick out the story tonight. And she'll go, daddy, not another Bible story. I'll say, okay, what do you want to read? And she'll go to her shelf and she'll pick out her favorite of all time, Cinderella. She picks out Cinderella. It's what she's dressed up as as Halloween this year, um, Cinderella. And, uh, and so we read the story over and over again. You know the story of Cinderella. And Esther has this similar type of fairy tale kind of feel. Cinderella goes to the palace, goes to the castle for the, you know, for the party for the, um, for the prince. And no one knows who she is. Nobody knows that she's really Cinderella back from the, the house that that, that uh, you know, she had been made into someone. And she, Cinderella kind of had this secret, this, the clock strikes 12, you know, all the dads of, uh, of boys. This is an amazing story, Cinderella. You need to read it sometime. It's unbelievable. And, uh, and so she, it, you know, it ends up working together beautifully in the end. Well, very similar for Esther. Esther is uh, the story about now this person that has a chance to be queen, that is now kind of moved into the palace, uh, the palace, the castle, kind of moved in there. But she has a secret. And no one knows that she is a Jew. The only people who know are her and her uncle, Mordecai, right? And so that's kind of where we left it off last week. And we took two things away from the story, just to kind of recap where we were. Last week, we said that what we can take away from the first part of Esther is that sometimes there can be value in staying quiet when others think you should speak up, right? We talked about that. That just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you're supposed to be the loudest person on the universe. That just because you love Jesus doesn't mean your job is to, you know, hit people upside the head with a two-by-four all the time. Sometimes blending in has value. That you can be noble or you can, you know, have a platform and have influence. And so sometimes Daniel didn't do it. Daniel chose another route and God used that in a great way. But we see Esther kind of weaving her way into society. Weaving her way into this culture. Blending in. And then there's going to come a time where she's going to have influence because she's blended in for a little while. So we said, you know, sometimes there's value in not speaking up. And we said that even when God seems absent, he's working behind the scenes on all the details. That the name of God is not mentioned one time in the story of Esther. But that, but that even though he may feel absent, even though it seems like he's not around or, you know, you don't feel him or hear him. He's still working behind the scenes and all the details. So we're going to pick up today in Esther chapter 2. And we're actually going to start at verse 1. Even though we read, we read 1 through 10 last week, we're going to go back and read that again. So we're going to Esther chapter 2, verse 1. Esther chapter 2, verse 1. And it'll be up on the screen for you um, to, uh, to follow along. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, we want to give you one. We think it's a really important gift. So, um, but here we go. Esther chapter 2, uh, verse 1. It says, Later, when King Xerxes' anger had cooled, and he was having second thoughts about what Vashti had done and what he had ordered against her. Let me just paraphrase that to modern terms. He's lonely because he just got his butt whooped in a battle. And he's texting Vashti at like 1130 like, hey, babe, what you doing? You know, like, you want to stop by? Right? He's lonely. Right? He's a booty call. Right? And so, I'm not allowed to say that. Y'all are like, oh, my God. I've said a lot worse than that. Like, y'all got upset by booty call? Okay. All right. 
I got to remember not to say that second service. Okay. Y'all get the unedited version here in a second. And Cecil's not here this week, so I'm like free reign. I can just... He normally has to edit my stuff. So anyway, all right, so that's what's happening. He's lonely. He just got his butt whooped in a three-year battle with the Greeks. And he's like, now why did I do that again? Why did I kick Vashti out of the palace again? And, uh, and so the king's young attendant stepped in and got the ball rolling. Let's begin a search for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint officials in every province of his kingdom to bring every beautiful young virgin to the palace complex of Susa, uh, of the harem run by Haggai, the king's eunuch. Whoever sees the women, he will put them through their beauty treatments. Then let the girl who best pleases the king be made queen in place of Vashti. And the king's like, okay, I mean, I guess if you twist my arm about it, I guess I'll go for it. And uh, no, the king's like, awesome, great idea. So verse 5 says, now there was a Jew who lived in the palace complex in Susa. His name was Mordecai son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, the Benjamite, and his ancestors had been taken from Jerusalem. We talked about that last week. Carried off with the king, uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Mordecai had raised his cousin Hadassah, otherwise known as Esther, since, she was, uh, since he had no father or mother. And here's a really, really important sentence, real phrase right here. The girl had a good figure and a beautiful face. After her parents died, Mordecai had adopted her. The girl had... A, fig, a figure and a beautiful um, face. It's interesting that the Bible describes Esther's beauty and figure because that's, um, that's not normal for the Bible. Normally, when the Bible introduces us to characters and stories, um, it will talk about the inner qualities, um, the spiritual qualities of someone. Very rarely does the Bible ever describe the, um, the physical qualities uh, of people in the Bible. And so we are to, led to believe that, that, that Esther is drop-dead gorgeous. Jewish history, Jewish historians label her as uh, one of the four most beautiful women in history. Um, that, that she was that gorgeous, that she was that beautiful. And so if the Bible kind of goes out of its way to, um, to, to point out her beauty, there's a reason. Everything's in the Bible for a reason. And so they want us to know, the first time we hear about her name, we want, they want you and I to know that Esther, the girl, had a good figure and, and a, a beautiful face. Now, God using pretty girls is nothing new. God has been using pretty girls to get boys to come to church for thousands of years. Can I get an amen, fellas? Anybody out there? Come on. We wouldn't be caught dead in church. But it's like we saw that girl. She said she goes to church. We're like, I go. I'm in, right? I mean, beautiful girls has always been, you know, a weapon of God to get men in church. <clears throat> it's nothing new. But this is significant because you and I are tempted to think that God only uses, let me air quote it, spiritual things to make a difference, right? Don't we, don't we think that? Aren't we tempted to think that? That God only uses, you know, the spiritual things to really make a difference in life. Those are the things, like, like, uh, like, yeah, Jason, I mean, obviously, you're like a teacher. You're a preacher. Like, duh. I mean, like, you know, God uses that. And, and you're, you know, God uses, you know, uh, he calls people to ministry. And so, you know, if somebody can sing, like, oh, well, God would use the singing because, you know, then you could use that in church. And, and you know, God could use the teaching and, and, and the preaching and the serving. Like, yeah, I mean, those are spiritual things. And listen, quite honestly, guys like me have done a disservice to you sometimes making it sound like the only time God can use you is in church. Like the only time that God wants to use your gifts is in church. But that's, I mean, the Bible is so not that. The Bible is so opposite of that, right? 
that all of the amazing stuff that happened in the Bible and happened with Jesus happened outside the temple, happened out in the neighborhoods and in life. And so we're tempted, you and I, to think that God only uses, you know, spiritual things to make a difference. But Esther shows us that God's weapon of choice in this story is not preaching, it's not singing, you know. It's not because she has a beautiful voice. It's not because she knows the Bible. That God's weapon of choice in the story, the thing that qualified Esther to be God's woman of choice was what? Her beauty. Her beauty. That doesn't sound very spiritual, right? Matter of fact, most of us resent beautiful people. So like, it don't even sound spiritual at all, right? It's like, it's pretty girl, God's going to use, you know, some, some pretty girl, and it just doesn't, didn't, uh, didn't feel spiritual. Esther, Esther probably didn't think her beauty was spiritual, right? She felt like it was probably, you know, either just normal, or maybe she looked like her mom, or like she grew up with it, right? She saw herself in the mornings. Like she didn't, she probably, maybe she knew like, okay, well, I'm, I'm somewhat attractive, I guess, but like, I don't think, I don't think Esther was like, you know, God has given me my beauty and God's going to use my beauty to do something great. I don't think she felt like that at all. She probably just thought, that outfit looks good, I'll wear that. And I got lots of compliments, right? So she just kind of grew up with it. But, but here's, here's kind of what this first part of Esther 2 shows us. is that God uses all kinds of things and really kind of everything is spiritual. Everything is spiritual, not just church things. You know, everything is spiritual. Anything that God can use is spiritual. He, he's in the everyday things. And you and I have a tendency to downplay the things that we live with every day. We don't think that they're special. We don't think that they're spiritual, but, but it is. That God has given you gifts and abilities and things that you don't feel like are special and you don't feel like they're spiritual and you live with them every day so you don't even think they're that different you think maybe everybody's good at those things or everybody has those things, but God is in the everyday things. Here's the way I said it. Here's the way I wrote it down. Things that feel natural to us become supernatural when God uses them. Things that are natural to us become supernatural when God uses them. You say, like what, Jason? Like, I mean, let me just give you some like non-spiritual things that are completely natural to you, that maybe you grew up with, or maybe every day for you, like crunching numbers. You're like, that's not spiritual. Matter of fact, that just makes me a nerd. That just makes me a dork. Can I tell you that God gave you the ability to crunch numbers? And if you think it's normal, just start talking numbers with people, and they'll get this look in their eye like, what are you talking about? One of the things that Andrew and I try to do in our premarital counseling we do with couples is we go over doing a budget, and we're just talking basic numbers, and there's this look like, well, how did you get that number? I don't even know how you got there. What, what even happened? How did we get there, right? But for you, it's something that's been completely normal all of your life. What about having people in your home? You think, well, that's not spiritual. Like, I just like having people in my house. I don't like having people in my house. My wife does, so, you know, we compromise. <laughs> Haley and Jeremy will come over, and, you know, we'll be talking. I'm like, okay, time to go. See you, you know. That's enough, right? I'm going out of town this week, so everybody just come over to the house. Andrea will love the company, you know. She'll, she'll enjoy that. But to you, that just feels incredibly normal. Like, yeah, you just have people around. But God gave you that. God, 
God gave you that. You think it's normal that like you always have something in the pantry to, to, to make when people stop by. That's not normal. It's not normal. We have cheese. I was like, that's what we have, right? Painting a picture, writing a story, teaching. What about negotiating? Do you think that God doesn't need to negotiate things in life? And listen, it doesn't have to just be a skill either. It could just be a characteristic or a trait like David. You know, we know David who killed Goliath. What is it that God used? Is it that God really used a stone and a slingshot? Well, I mean, yes, kind of. But really what God used was David's fearlessness. David was fearless. Bear, lion would show up. He'd be like, so? Right? I mean, it, something shows like a spider's at my house. And I'm like, ah, you know. Andrea, kill that. I, I can't get that. Right? And so, but David was fearless. And so God used something that felt natural for David to go and like kill a bear. was like, that was cool, right? And God says, I can use that. So there's this huge giant one day out there taunting the Israelites. And David's like, I can, hand, I can kill that. And everybody's saying, no, you can't. No, you can't. He's like, sure I can. Like, I'm not scared. Fearlessness, right? What about compassion? You think, well, I mean, it's just normal. Like, we're just supposed to be compassionate. You'd be surprised. But God has given that to you. Problem solving. You just have a gift. You just, you've grown up with it. And you're, it just makes sense in your mind. When you look at a problem, you figure out how to solve it. When cords are tangled or ropes are tangled, you know how to untangle them. I'm the guy who just takes the end and just starts shaking it, right? It'll shake out. We'll, we'll get it, right? But listen, it's, it's natural for you. These things that you've never thought were spiritual these things that you never thought had significance or that God would ever use, right? The story of Esther shows us that crunching numbers and negotiating and problem solving and having compassion and being fearless and having people in your home, they are incredibly spiritual things. And God can take those natural things and when he uses them, they become supernatural, right? Now, we don't know if Esther knew what God was doing. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. We don't have any inclination into, like, why she did what she did, how she did it, if she was excited, if she was down. We don't know. The Bible gives us no insight into that. But I personally believe that Esther had no idea what was going on. Like, I don't believe Esther was thinking, okay, if I could get into the beauty contest, then I could maybe be the queen. And if I'm the queen, then I could have, you know, influence. No. I think it was like, hey, beauty contest. Esther, you've always been pretty. Why don't you go try out for American Idol? You've always been a singer, you know? I was like, okay, yeah, I'll do it. And so, even though we don't think she actually got a choice, like, she just had to go in. I don't think she knew what was going on, right? She was just going about her everyday life, like, like another teenage girl, Mary. Just going about her everyday life. And there was something about Mary that God said, you know what, I can, I can use that. Maybe it was Mary's character. Maybe it was her commitment or her courage or not to cut corners or to hang in there when things got tough. And God said, you know what? Mary's got resolve. Resolve is spiritual. Let's have her be the mother of Jesus. She's just going about her everyday life. Esther's just going about her everyday life. And neither one of them ever thought that they would have the ability to save a nation. And so God is setting things in place for a bigger event. And it's just a great reminder. We're going to keep reading. But these first eight verses of Esther chapter 2 are just a great reminder for you and I that big doors swing on small hinges. 
Big doors swing on small hinges. And as you and I look back on our life, we see that small events turned out to be much more larger and more influential events than we ever thought, didn't we? I mean, I know in my life I'm 17 years old and a buddy of mine just calls and says, hey, we need a guitar player. I'm like, I ain't doing nothing. So I go play guitar. That meaningless little, hey, yeah, I'll come play guitar. And then this girl walks through the back of the church and I'm like, oh my God, I love her. <laughs> right? It was just a, it was a, it was a big door that swung on a small hinge. And it was just, it was just an everyday, I, yeah, I'll play guitar, right? And God says, let me kind of work some things out here. And what you think is some small, little, nothing, little, insignificant little thing may just be a, a door into something significant, something huge. So let's keep reading. Esther chapter 2, verse 8. So when the king's order had been publicly posted, many young girls were brought to the palace complex of Susa and given over to Haggai, who was the overseer of the women, and Esther was among them. Haggai liked Esther and took a special interest in her. If you're taking notes or whatever, maybe just underline that, verse 9. Haggai liked Esther and took a special interest in her. Right off, he started her beauty treatments, ordered special food, assigned her seven personal maids from the palace, and put her and her maids in the best rooms in the harem. And all the ladies were like, amen, I mean, I'll take some of that. You know, seven maids, you know, beauty treatments, I'll do that. And, uh, and so Esther did not say anything about her family and racial background because Mordecai had told her not to. So every day Mordecai strolled beside the court of the harem to find out how Esther uh, was and get news of what she was doing. Verse 12, each girl's turn came to go into King Xerxes after she had completed the 12 months of prescribed beauty treatments. Six months treatment with oil and myrrh followed by six months of perfumes and very cosmetics. Um, when it was time for the girl to go to the king, she was given whatever she wanted to take with her when she left the harem for the king's quarters. She would go there in the evening, and in the morning she would return to a second harem overseen by some guy whose parents just tortured him with a name like Shazagaz, the king's eunuch in charge of the concubines. She never again went back to the king unless the king took a special liking to her uh, and asked her by name. Verse 15, when it was Esther's turn to go to the king, right, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch in charge of the harem, had recommended. Esther, just as she was, won the admiration of everyone who saw her. Verse 16, she was taken to King Xerxes in the royal palace in the 10th month, the month of Tebeth, uh, in the seventh year of the king's reign. In verse 17, the king fell in love with Esther far more than with any other of his women or any other of the virgins. He was totally smitten by her. He placed a royal crown on her head and made her queen in place of Vashti. And then the king gave a great banquet for all his nobles and officials, Esther's banquet. And he proclaimed a holiday for all the provinces and handed out gifts with royal generosity. Now, we told you last week that, um, that, a lot of, like, that Esther's not a really famous story to like teach and preach. Uh, there are people who do studies on it. You know, it, it's got some kind of weird, kind of gray area issues. So when I decided to, um, when we decided, hey, we're going to do Esther, I say to Andrea, hey, listen, we're going to be doing Esther. And she goes, oh, my gosh, I love Esther. It is the most romantic story. And I was like, uh, really? She's like, it is so romantic. The king and the queen, and they fall in love. And I'm like, I don't think you've read Esther chapter 2. And she had been a part of another study that had kind of talked about the romance. And yes, there is love, and they do fall in love. But this is as 
despicable and womanizing and trashy as it sounds. Like, just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean it's like, you know, God's best method. For, but, but this is, it, it is exactly how it sounds. It is a sex competition. Put the earmuffs on the kiddos if you got them in here. It is a sex competition. And whoever has the best sex with Xerxes is going to be made queen, right? And this is just another reminder. Well, this is not the point, but let's just say, this is another reminder that God can use anything and bring beauty out of anything. Because if this hadn't worked out for Esther, she would spend the rest of her life living in a side room back behind the palace, never having a life, never having an existence, never being able to marry. Never, she would just be at the king's disposal whenever he got lonely at night. That would be what she did for the rest of her life. If this didn't work, and there are times for you and I when God's going to do something significant and it's going to feel like it's a terrible idea. It's going to feel like it's sinful. Maybe a leader or someone in authority is going to make a decision that doesn't even feel right or godly or spiritual or whatever it is. And if it goes wrong, it could be bad. But God can use any situation or any scenario. The Bible says he makes beauty from ashes. This is not a romantic story really at all. But God is still working and weaving his way into this story very providentially. Now, I want to show you um, some important things here. All right? Um, we, we talked just a second ago at the beginning about how that God uses everyday natural things to do supernatural things. But how does he do it? That's kind of, the, I guess, the bigger question. So God uses these natural gifts, these natural abilities, these natural inclinations in our lives. They are spiritual whether they feel like it or not. He uses those. But how does he use those? What is it that he does? Um, we mentioned it last week just a little bit, but, but the word providence. Providence is kind of a um, Bible word, kind of. Uh, it's in there a little bit. But providence is really kind of a theological study word. And providence is really just God-ordained outcomes, God-ordained influence. It's pretty much God connecting dots. Providence is those that has to be more than a coincidence type of moments. You've had them in your life. I've had them in my life, right? And the, the Old Testament is filled with providential uh, scenarios by God. Providential type statements are like in the story of Ruth, where the Bible says that Ruth just so happened to come upon the field of a man named Boaz. You can either read that as, wow, that was crazy coincidence, or just so happened that God was doing, doing something. You, you could look at it like Joseph, you know, just so happened to be selected out of the jail to go and work for Pharaoh. It just so happened that everybody who met Joseph liked him. It just so happened that Moses was raised in Pharaoh's home. You, you understand what I'm saying? That's providence. When you read a story and you go, Oh, God, God's doing something. God's connecting dots. God's working this out. God's weaving his way into the story. And there are, there are two statements that we just read that identify God's providence in the story. The first one is in verse 9. Verse 9 says, Haggai, who was the eunuch who was in charge of organizing all the ladies and, and, and deciding who got what and what room and all that stuff, right? Haggai liked Esther and took special interest in her. So you can read that and you can go, oh, well, that worked out nicely. Man, Esther must have been really likable, which she probably was really likable. Or 
you can read that and see some providence of God there. That God, for whatever reason, there's, the historians believe there's 400 girls in this competition, so to speak. And so you can read that as Esther just, you know, was a little bit better than all of them, and maybe she was. Or you can read it as out of 400 girls, God providentially opened the eyes of Haggai and kind of made him like Esther more than the other 399 girls. Because God does things like that. God does things like that. The second one is in verse 17. It says, The king fell in love with Esther far more than with any of his other women. Now, I'm just going to go ahead. I'm going to throw this out there. I'm going to kind of confess something to you. Um, because most of you believe that I'm not a romantic. Most of you think I'm not romantic at all. But you got to know something about me. I am incredibly romantic in theory, okay? And here's what I mean by that. I believe that God has one person. One person. For other, and you go and you start debating with me about all the dominoes. and whatever. I ain't got time for that. Here's what I believe. I chose my wife. She chose me. We fell in love. I could have blown it, whatever, whatever, whatever. But now 10 years later when I look back, I go, there was no one else better for me. God knew exactly what he was doing when he connected us up. Could I have married somebody else? Absolutely, I could have married somebody else. But I believe that Andrea was God's best for me. That it was God orchestrating events, right? I believe that. Whenever we watch a movie or a TV show, I get totally wrapped up in the romance in the TV show. I'm like, man, I hope they get together, right? I've got this thing inside of me that wants the things to work out. I've got, I, I'm wired that way. And so I believe that people falling in love is spiritual. I believe that people falling in love is providential by God, Right? And when we tell our stories, we tell these whoops, just so happened, coincidental, whatever stories. They're not a coincidence. God had plans for my life. God had plans for my wife's life. And he brought us together by his plan and his time. And we fell in love. But I don't believe that we just fell in love. Andrew just liked me because of my, you know, chiseled muscular body. I don't think that's why she fell in love with me. Or my raw athleticism. I don't think that's why she fell in love with me kidding. I think that God opened her eyes, and he could have opened her eyes to anybody else. I think God opened my eyes, could have opened my eyes to anybody else. But for whatever reason, maybe I've been reading too much Cinderella, but for whatever reason, God said, she's going to get your attention. She's going to get your heart. And that's what's happening in the, in the second chapter of Esther. We see God orchestrating some events, opening some eyes, opening some hearts. Haggai and Xerxes, their eyes are open. I mentioned Joseph earlier. The story of Joseph is filled with providential um, uh, examples. But, but every time Joseph finds himself in another bad situation, the Bible will make a statement like, you know, but the, the, the warden of the prison, not the warden, but the, the, the head of the jailer, you know, loved Joseph. Or... Everything Joseph touched, you know, every investment uh, turned to wealth. We see these things like, yes, Joseph was smart. Yes, uh, yes, Joseph was working hard. But there was God's favor on the situation. 
So please don't hear, mishear me. It's not that Esther could have been like, it's not like the movie Shallow How. It's not like Esther is completely disgusting. And, you know, and then Xerxes is like, oh, she's the most beautiful woman ever. No, God still used some natural beauty. Yes, Esther was likable. Yes, Joseph was a hard worker. God used those things. And, they, and, and our involvement in God's providence is very key. But then we, God takes these natural things in our lives and he makes them supernatural and he puts his favor on them. It's how you've gotten to where you are in your career or in your job. You say, well, no, I work hard. Sure, you work hard. But I could introduce you to a million people who work hard. But for whatever reason, that conversation or that resume or that phone call got to this place that got to that place. And God was connecting dots and orchestrating events, sometimes positive, joyful events, sometimes negative, painful events. But God was orchestrating those events. Having children. We talked about it last week, Acts 17, that God appoints man's time and region and land and borders. I don't believe that, you know, it was just accidental. That, and you don't believe that either, that our children are a gift from God. And so we pray for our children and we say, God, you have them here for a reason. You know, what do you want them to do? And that's the way that God is with you and with your life. Esther's beauty got her foot in the door. Esther's beauty and likability got her foot in the door. But God's favor opened the hearts and the minds of Haggai and Xerxes. And so we're going to stop there today. We're not going any farther in, in the story. And I promise we'll start making pace because we are going to get this done in six weeks. But, um, but we're going to stop there. And, and here's really what I, I think we take today. And here's what I hope we take away and, and what I'm going to pray for us about and what I've been praying about. And, and it's really kind of putting the two thoughts together. I've been praying and I want you to pray and I want you, God to really help you to identify the natural things in your life that he's gifted you with. The natural things in your life that you're good at, that you never thought were spiritual, they just felt completely normal to you. They felt like, oh, it's just your DNA, it's just how you are, it's just what it is. That God would help you identify those. Not just to operate in the church, we need you. We're looking for 50 new volunteers to help us get ready for what we believe God's wanting to do. We could use you. But I'm talking beyond that. Beyond that. Out in the everyday life that you would identify those things. If you've never taken a spiritual giftings test, we would love to do that. You can just come to our, our growth track, um, Discover My Place. It happens not in November, but it happens in December. It's rotating months. Um, but man, do that. But you, you don't even have to take a spiritual giftings test. Just talk to the people who know you best and say, like, what are things that I'm good at that you think I'm good at? Now, let me ask you this question. What are things that people around you think are such a big deal that you do and they feel completely normal to you, natural to you? For me to be up on stage in front of people, I don't get nervous. I don't feel pressure. It doesn't bother me at all. Some of you would hyperventilate if I started bringing you up on the stage, right? And so people will say to me all the time, I just don't know how you do that. Oh my goodness. Like, I mean, you're just, you get, you get up there and talk to people. And when you say that, thank you, because I enjoy the compliment, but I think like, it's not that big a deal. You just stand up there and talk, right? It's natural. It's normal. God has given you those. God has given you those. Identify those. Pray to God. God, show me those things. What are those things? What is it that you're wanting to, to use? It's not just preachers and pastors. It's, it's actors and professors and teachers and businessmen and stay-at-home moms. It's, it's all these things that God uses to influence 
areas that he wants us to get into. And then secondly, is to pray for the favor of God on our lives. Okay, God, I'm going to put in my effort. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to do the best that I can. But listen, then I want you to take your favor and your providence, and I want you to open doors that it would take me 20 years to open. But because you can do it, it happens in a moment. When we pray around here for people to find jobs because you need jobs, you know, if you've ever prayed for you, you've heard me say this. I'll pray, God, I pray that their resume would get to the top of the stack. There's a stack of resumes. God, I pray their resume would go to the top. You do that, God. You can do that. You can make things like that happen. God, I pray that their boss would recognize them when maybe they've never recognized them before. God, you can do that. Come on, God. Make that happen. God's favor on, on, on your life. See, I grew up in a home, and I've got parents and grandparents that believe that God gives his favor. I've got a grandmother that believes that God makes cars run longer than they're supposed to run. And when they break down, you just get some anointing oil out and lay it on the hood. Anybody got a grandmother like that? Right? And so my grandmother always taught me, you don't get where you are because you're talented or gifted. You get where you are because God shows you favor. So that's what I'm praying over you today. And I want you to begin to pray that. One of the verses that, that, I have, um, that I highlighted one day in reading and have written down, it's in Genesis, but I can't remember the reference now. I think it's around 24. But it's when, it's when, um, it's when Abraham sends one of his uh, servants to go find a wife for his son. And he just prays a very simple prayer. Before he goes to the well to, and he meets Rachel, he prays a very simple prayer. He says, God, make me successful today. Just a sentence, God, make me successful today. I highlighted that. I'm like, God, if that's in there, I'm going to claim that one right there. God, make me successful today. Pray for God's favor on your life. God, don't just help me find a job. Help me find the job, the boss, the house, you know, the neighbors, right? Show me favor. So we want God to identify those gifts in us, and we want God to show us favor and do things in split seconds that we could never do on our own because that's what's happening in this story. God said, I'm gonna take a pretty girl, put her in a contest, and make a king fall in love with her. Let's pray. God, I just pray for your favor, that, your, that this church, God, would have favor all over it. God, that this would be a place that um, providential things happen, that blessing things happen. God, I, I pray that, that this would be a place where gifts come to life. Where we hear stories of people, you know, doing things in their natural ability, but you supernaturally make something great out of them, God. Do that in this place with these people, God. God, I pray that the song that we sing is true. That you would write every line of our story. Write every line of our story, God. The everyday things, the things that don't feel spiritual, that you would coordinate and providentially orchestrate every line of our story and show us favor, God. While nobody's looking around this morning, we always want to give a chance for somebody to put their faith in Jesus Christ. And if you're here today and you would say, Jason, you're talking about all these spiritual things and God doing all these things, but I got to be honest, I don't know Jesus Maybe I did at one point, but man, I'd be honest, I'm not living for Christ. Or maybe I'm back in church for the first time in a long time and I'm tired of living on my own. I wanna give my life to Christ. I wanna live for Jesus. I don't even know what all that means, but I just know, I feel it in my heart. I wanna give my life to Jesus Christ. Nobody's looking around. 
um, this morning but me. But if you're here and you would say, Jason, that's me. I want to give my life to Christ. Would you just raise your hand and make eye contact with me? You would say, man, I want to, I'm tired of living for me. I'm not going to embarrass you. You're not going to have to stand up, come down front. We just want to know. We want to pray with you. Anybody else? You'd say, man, I just want to give my life to Christ. God, I pray for extraordinary favor on the lives of every person in here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we hope that you enjoyed week two of Esther. Um, if, hopefully you're better than me and we're able to look further on than the booty call part. I mean, <laughs> in fact, I text Cecil uh, during service and uh, we have a, a picture of that up here. Uh, Pastor Jason just said booty call and Cecil said he's on his way. The, the 17 unread messages were from Lou. She's going nuts. She's, uh, yeah. I'm just kidding. That's not real. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm going to go ahead and invite the offering team to come on up to the front, and we'll pray over the offering, and then we'll have a short video for you regarding Ignite, and then that'll be the end of service. Dear Father.